Uh, hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 319. Um, continuing with the, uh, the wood theme tonight, going back to the beginning of woodworking, uh, <clears throat> we're going to talk about the uh, half-timber frame house. So as far back as the 14th century, if not still earlier, a friendly rivalry appears to have existed between the stonemason, the bricklayer, and the carpenter in the building of houses. Of the products of the three, the half-timber house is infinitely the most picturesque and, at its zenith, is peculiar to England only. Houses of timber are to be found all over Europe, in Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, in certain districts of France, and the American settlers on the eastern seaboard adapted this method also. The familiar clap-boarded house of New England is really the old English house of timber and plaster, boarded over at a later date. After shrinkage of the wood plaster had taken place, this is the reason, to withstand the rigors of the New England winter. So it wasn't an open sieve for the, uh, for the air to blow through. In all these countries, however, utility was always the first consideration. In England, during the 14th and 15th centuries, at least, the decorative quality of the timber house absolutely dominates the utilitarian, yet the Gothic thoroughness of principle. Every ornamental detail is contrived to serve a useful purpose. While the oaken plaster or the oaken brick house seems to demand a setting of old growing timber, yet we find the style used to almost an equal extent in cities and in streets, as in the celebrated row of Chester and the old houses of Staples Inn, fronting Holborn bars in London, the latter, isolated as they are at the present day, were merely survivals from the Great Fire of 1666, which destroyed so many of the London timber houses existing at the time of the Restoration. With narrow, torturous streets, stories each overhanging the one below, until at the top, the buildings on either side of the street almost touched. The highways of restoration, London must have been more picturesque than, a, than sanitary from them throwing out the waste products. At this period, the water for household consumption was conveyed in pipes hollowed out from tree trunks. Some of these were taken out and replaced by modern iron ones within the last 30 years. So this is the longevity of oak and other woods of these modern uh, hollowed out uh, pipes. And of sanitation, there were none. The central open gutter of the street was the kennel, the channel for sewage and refuge right in the middle of the street. On rainy days, the water from roofs was discharged directly in the street. Sometimes also slops were thrown from windows. Rainwater heads and leaders were almost unknown. 
Umbrellas were unheard of until more than 100 years later, and the satins and velvets of the Cavaliers must have suffered grievous harm when the wearers were caught in a storm in the open. During the 17th century, many of these old timber houses were marked by a facing brick, with a parapet gutter and low-pitched roof, the gables being removed at the time. So these pages in, in the history are written in an old house dating from 1660 in Kensington Square, which had been refaced in the days of Queen Anne. Exteriorly speaking, its original identity had been lost, but within the old powdering closets, to give them a polite name, still retain as they were built. Kensington, now one of the more fashionable quarters of London, was at this time a remote country village, separated from London by open fields, which it was dangerous to cross after nightfall, if one wished to avoid the attentions of footpads. It is impossible to follow the development of the English house from the 14th to the 16th centuries without some knowledge of the important changes in house planning that took place in that space of time. The Great Hall, which was general until about the year 1500, effectively bisected the house from ground to roof, and this was the living room for the family. Retainers, visitors, and guests. Even in small houses of lesser, the lesser yeoman class, we find these high-roofed halls, and if we substitute the less prestigious term of general living room for great hall, it may be said with literal term of truth that such an apartment was to be found in every English country house, almost down to the cottage, until the close of the 15th century. Everywhere we find these high-roof living rooms, or the remains of them, complete even to the double-sided oak screen which formed the passage, barred from a great hall, leading from entrance doorway to the buttery or kitchen regions of the dwelling. As a rule, later conditions, change of habits of domicile, have subdivided these halls either laterally or by partitions, or vertically by joists and ceilings. Thus, the original timbers of the roof are to be found only in attics, and here, hidden away, one encounters such details as crenovated cambered tie beams, ornamented braces, or even tracered spandrels, obviously never intended to be concealed in this fashion. A representative example of a hall screen in a yeoman's house of small size, now only a farmhouse, used partially for the storage of hay and fodder, is still to be seen in the old Kennish village of Smarden. Others abound on the English countryside, but they are usually so altered as to be unrecognizable except by the antiquity. Corridors and passages, other than the entry from main door to kitchens, were unknown in houses prior to the 16th century. One room opened directly into another, with the great hall 
also, which effectively divided the house into two parts. More than one staircase was necessary, and sometimes there were three or more. There were nearly always unimportant, often hidden away behind doors, and sometimes, very rarely, in original examples, we find the central newel, or vice staircase, where the treads and risers are notched into a central vertical post winding round from floor to floor in the same way as a stone turret stair. The English staircase began to assume dignity and importance only after the great hall had disappeared from the house plan, replaced by the long gallery and the great parlor. The long gallery is nearly always on the first floor. In America, it is known as the second, rarely on the ground level and never, as far as I know, on the upper floors. There is a long gallery, say, at Lime Park on the second, which is the third story. But as the entire house was rebuilt by Lenny in the early 18th century, this gallery must have been contrived at that time. The old paneling of the original 1613 long gallery has long been reused, but is made out with portions copied in detail, stained to resemble the oak to replace flanks used by the great drawing room on the floor below. The pattern of this long gallery wainscoting at Lyme is interesting. Of arcade, it is interlaced in an inlaid pattern in a design which is very rare. I know of only one other example, and it's in the same district at Tissenton Hall in Devonshire, but this is neither inlaid nor carved. Ornamental plasterwork begins to the timber house period, but is rarely used for ceilings. The usual devices were either hydauric shields and coats of arms, or grotesque animals, disturbed in unconnected fashion on walls. The symmetrical plaster ceiling belongs to the brick or stone house of the 17th century. There is little doubt that Foreigners were responsible for the introduction into English into England of these modeled or cast plaster ceilings. The foreign influence is very marked in some of the Lancashire examples, as in Speck or in Ashley Halls. We have already seen the danger of attempting to square facts with theories. The half timber house offers no exception to the rule. One would look for the house of wood in forest counties, for stone buildings in the neighboring, of the neighborhood of quarries, and for brick structures where clay is quite abundant. Yet accurate investigation will show that no such easy solution of identifying can be found. For instance, in East Anglia possessed no forest other than Epping, which can hardly be said to be a district at all, situated as it is many miles from Suffolk and Norfolk. Yet in these two counties, we find that the richest timber houses are of the 15th century. It is true that wood houses are to be met with almost throughout the length and breadth of England, but rich examples are extremely localized. In Cheshire, Lancashire, Derbyshire, Devonshire, and the eastern Welsh counties, 
and in Norfolk and Suffolk, and perhaps northern Essex may be included in that. In Kent, Surrey, Sussex, Hamptonshire, Middlesex, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, and Herefordshire. Timber houses are also found, but are very rarely at any degree of elaboration. In Cornwall, the neighboring county of Devonshire, they are practically non-existent. Where rich woodwork is encountered in small parish churches, fine timber houses may be expected in the same localities, but not invariably as the former is more general than the latter. Industries appear to have become localized in certain districts at very early periods. Thus Kent, Surrey, and western Middlesex favored brickwork, and there we find those beautiful two-inch bricks of fine cherry color, laid with wide flat mortar joints and carved with twisted chimneys of the same material are plentiful or were until the, the rage for demolition of the last 40 years set in. The old portions of Hampton Court Palace exhibit many wonderful specimens of carved brick chimneys. But Hampton Court was built by a mighty prevalent and added to by the king or many kings. In the Midlands, stone is more usual. And in Cornwall, as in Aberdeen, granite is the building material for the great houses, harsh and forbidding, equally to the workman and the beholder. Whether it was a demand for a particular style which caught and was brought by carpenters, bricklayers, and stonemasons in certain localities, or whether the predilection grew out of this localism, if we're rash to say any of the above with certainty. To presuppose such a thing as a public demand is always hazardous. The public, public usually takes what is offered to it. England must have been a disturbed state at the time, convulsed with periodical civil wars, in the days when many of the finest of these timber houses were built. The moat with which many are surrounded must have been dug for defensive purposes, as stagnant water can hardly have contributed much to either the comfort or the convenience of the inmates. Yet the great Tangy in Surrey, Ickham Moat in Kent, and Morton Hall, the finest black and white house in England, are all moated and the last named, although dating only as late as the middle of the 16th century, narrowly escaped siege by Cromwell's Ironsides. So I like to hear of a moated house, especially if, it, uh, if it's to be known as the Grange. It seems to me, for no reason that I can define, that a moat must presuppose the existence of a ghost, and it can moat should have several. If half the legends about the history of the house be true, there is a circular cover to the floor of the dark corridor leading from the dining room to the withdrawing chamber, and beneath it is the moat. A guest well wined, and this cover removed, and after you, please, here, joining the ladies and the moat, would tell no tales. The murderous oblique requires a lot of explaining away, even in these days.
Many moated timber houses could be named here, if space permitted. Baddesley Clinton in Worcestershire dates back to the 14th century. Bitsmorton Court in Worcestershire, it is much younger, but its great hall is now a farm kitchen, and its fine, fine banqueting room, 50 feet by 24 feet, is used for the making and storages of cheeses. So Compton Winax is just a jumble of stone, brick, and oak timber, but a charmingly medley withal, and it has uh, its own wonderful moat. There is another fine timber house, that of Catsby, the gunpowder plot conspirator. Ashby St. Leger, 80 miles north from London, on the Hollyhead Road, where the plotters assembled at six in the evening on the fatal day when Guy Fawkes was arrested, which should, in my judgment, have been moated also. But perhaps it's, it is some somber enough without that feature added to it. The English timber house plays up nobly, as it were, to its material British oak, the first story being built, oak uprights filled in with herring bones of brick nogging on a base of brick or stone. The joists were, pla joists were placed across and allowed to overhang, thereby preventing the end joists from decaying. With the ends finished with brackets or carved devices, the post on the next floor being tenoned into the wall plate placed at the outer extremity of the joist, and this repeated with each successive story. The room above was always as much larger than the one below by the amount of the joist projection. Occasionally, a double overhang at front and ends was attempted, which necessitated the diagonal hang at front creating a dragon beam into which the joists were tended at right angles to each other so they could project in each direction. To support the dragon beam, the corner post was necessary. That picturesque adjunct to so many of these fine black and white houses of the 15th and 16th centuries. To complete the picture, the corbelled bay or straight mullioned windows, perhaps an oriel of full house height glazing of diamond quarries with ebonized panels inset, overhanging gables with pierced and carved barge boards, roofs of red sand-faced tiles, and last, but by no means least, bold brick chimneys, chamfered, faceted, and carved. Not pygmy affairs, as if chimneys were things to be hidden, but noble erections, standing high and hard above the roofs of houses, worthy of the house, crowning it in its glory, saying, look at me, as it were, and with a fitting background of great oaks, beeches, chestnuts, limes, and elms. And you have the English half-timber house at its best, a worthy monument to the people to whom the house, its beauty, and its dignity meant much. Not something of the moment, but for succeeding generations to love and treasure. How different is the house of the present day, which, in the words of the house agent, possesses, among other amenities, an easy access to every possible means of getting away from it. Close to trolley cars, omnibuses, 
and railway stations, and complete with a garage to hold a powerful automobile to make the flight rapid and effectual. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.